Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm, sunny morning here in the capital is Pauline Crow, OBE. Pauline is the Chief Executive of Prisoners Abroad, a UK registered human rights and welfare charity which supports British citizens who are imprisoned overseas. Uh, Pauline, very warm welcome to yourself today. and Thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure welcoming you on with us, Pauline. Uh, certainly is a lovely day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start today would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we're recording this podcast in mid-July 2021, and so we are still living under some form of COVID social restrictions, and that's now been the case for the best part of the last 15 months or so. Um, looking back over the pandemic by and large, to what extent has it affected you and your work within the Prisoners Abroad organisation? Oh, simply put, in all ways, um, we we help British citizens in prison overseas and, and support their families, their friends, uh, and we provide a resettlement service when they return to the UK. Um, this means that our service users are spread around the world, um, and although numbers are a bit lower at the moment, it usually means that we're working with about 1,700 prisoners in over 100 countries, um, plus around 2,000 of their family members and friends. Um, the services that we provide are focused on their welfare. So it's about their physical and mental health. And, and we have a, a team of multilingual caseworkers who provide a vast range of information about prison systems and the issues that people face. Now, under the COVID lockdowns around the world, communication, which is already difficult with prisoners who are very reliant on postal services, and it just stopped in so many countries. And this this meant that in countries where actually there's little or no food provided to prisoners, um, and, or indeed any form of medical support which has to be paid for, um, we had to work really hard to get our life-saving grants to people who who desperately needed them. Um, in places like Peru, we bought five water filters because the water supply was was badly pol- polluted, and and we know that these filters, you know, really transform people's health and well-being. In Southeast Asia, we uh, we funded the purchase of some uh, PPE to try and improve. Uh, the health of our service users. I mean, it took us months to get our grants back into prisons, um, but by working really closely with the Foreign Office, we did it. And for families, it's been an absolutely desperate time, knowing that, that COVID is rife in so many of these prisons around the world. Uh, and the fear, of course, of unable being unable to establish contact with their loved one. Um, and, and not knowing if they were alive, I mean, it was just awful. We switched all our family support services 
to online, such as Zoom calls and uh, telephone calls and so on. I mean, for people released from prison during this period and returning to the UK, of course, they arrived at Heathrow Airport to find that London was closed. And again, we, we switched all our services online uh, and on the telephone to ensure that we supported them, to, you know, during that, that crisis point. Um, for us as an organization at Prisoners Abroad, I mean, it was a massive challenge uh, for my amazing team of colleagues to, to switch to remote working from their own homes um, and to get almost all our services uh, working remotely. I mean, without them, we knew that greater numbers of people uh, could possibly die. And, and I have ultimate respect for the commitment and resilience shown by my colleagues uh, to actually achieve all of that, uh, all of the rethinking that went into all of that. Um, and then, of course, we have this wonderful team, not just staff, but volunteers as well. And, and we all went through those sort of phases of, you know, early on it was a crisis mode and then it was about tenacity, wasn't it? And, and then there was a sense of exhaustion. But I think now we've come through all of that and we're more used to it. You know, there's a feeling that this is a more settled way of working. And, and in the sense that, you know, this is now normal. Um, underpinning all of what we do, of course, our fundraising has been significantly affected. Um, no events, the trusts and foundations who are really important uh, donors are under massively increased pressure. Um, and then, of course, there's all the economic uncertainty uh, about the impact of, of the virus on our economy and the challenge of funding this, this important and, and life-saving work quite simply just gets harder. It does, doesn't it? Fundraising has really sort of taken a hit in the charitable sector over the course of the uh, the last year or so. And they've had to be very, very innovative, haven't they, charitable organisations to try and find new ways of sort of getting around that and bringing those vital funds in. And part Absolutely. of that has been through technology, as we've seen with changes to our working practices as well. And I think what is now clear is that technology, flexible working, it's going to be a huge part of the status quo moving forward into even the post-pandemic world, isn't it? Mm, mm, Absolutely. I think that um, although we have switched so many of our services to online, we are very much seeking to get back to being able to deliver face-to-face services. Mm-hmm. Particularly for people returning uh, to the UK after after serving a sentence abroad, and many of the people that we work with uh, would would come into the category of digital exclusion because you know uh, prisons rarely enable prisoners. Or should I say outside the UK, prisons rarely enable prisoners uh, to become really au fait with modern technology, and that includes smartphones and so on. Um, So we're working with a group of people uh, for whom the digital world has has mostly passed them by, and it's a massive learning curve that we want to support people with when uh, when they come out. Exactly right. And it's also going to be important to monitor their mental health and well-being, isn't it, as it has been within your own organization? Because 
what the pandemic certainly has done is not only raise these concerns, but it's also made us far more aware of how important this issue is, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, mental health uh, and and mental and physical health and well-being actually is is so fundamental to the work that we do at Prisoners Abroad that ensuring that we look after uh the the health uh, and well-being of our staff too and our volunteers you know it's it's absolutely critical um i think that over the over these last months um you know we've always been a very tight-knit team of supportive people uh, because the work can be really emotionally challenging and really quite hard. Um, recreating that support network for people or that supportive environment perhaps um, when everybody is actually working remotely from their own homes has been a real task. Um, you know, for me as, as a leader, I've put a lot of time and effort into communicating with people and we've done WhatsApp groups and we've, you know, not just about work, but of course uh, an element of social uh, stuff as well. And, you know, we've all shared our funny pet photos um, and pictures of flowers and gardens. Um, And I've made a real effort to stay in individual touch with everybody in my team. Um, But also, of course, my trustee board. Um, You know, we've held additional meetings online and we've had Q&A sessions uh, to try and make sure that the trustees are completely in touch and informed with what's going on uh, and the way we've been operating during this period. Um, And then, of course, on top of that, there's been... Uh, communicating with our fantastic donors um, because we need them to keep giving. You know, they want to know what it is we're achieving with their money because, um, quite simply, we couldn't do this work without them. That's exactly right, and we have really strived, haven't we, to keep the communication channels open more than ever before. And I think we've learned an awful lot on that side of things. And also, it's enhanced trust, hasn't it, between leaders and their workforces? Um, people maybe who didn't necessarily trust people to go away, work from home and be as productive. They've been proven wrong. It's really hastened a kind of digital revolution in that sense, hasn't it? And enhanced trust between everyone. And I think in some senses, taking that lesson on board, even though there have been so many adverse impacts of the pandemic, in some ways it has made us stronger within industry, hasn't it? Um, I would like to think so. Um, I would definitely like to think so. I think I think we will see how this plays out over the coming months. I think that um, for prisoners abroad, we we already have a lot of um, flexible working and uh, part-time working within the organisation um, because we want to retain the skills and, and the fantastic experience of the team. Um, And so enabling them to work alongside their family commitments and all of those sorts of things has always been important to us. Um, I think that uh, although we want to retain some of the flexibility or the increased flexibility 
that we've put in place with with working remotely. We also know that our service users need uh, the face-to-face contact work, which means that we will have to go back into former patterns of working as well. Mm. But it's finding that balance and, and moving that forward over the coming year that we will feel our way along very gently. It's the hybrid approach, isn't it? And it is important to recognise, of course, that with flexible working, one size does not fit all. And I think in some sectors, we need that face-to-face contact with service users, but also I think we need it for our own mental well-being as well, because that sort of social interaction side of things, of being in a workplace with others, I think that is something that pre-pandemic maybe we took for granted a little bit. I'm I'm not sure that we ever took it for granted. I think because of the nature of the work that we do, um, dealing with other people's um, uh, distress and needs mm. in that respect, it's, it, yes, the, the support of your colleagues around you when you've taken a difficult, difficult phone call or you've had a really difficult meeting with a service user. Um, Yeah, the support of your colleagues is critical and we've never underestimated that. That's certainly really, really positive to hear. And I think it is something we need to really consider moving forward, just how we as employers can be flexible with our workforces and do the best we can for them. And as we think about July the 19th and what is likely to come beyond this so-called Freedom Day, What are your priorities at Prisoners Abroad going to be as hopefully we move into the post-pandemic period and try and embrace those challenges? Because there are still a great many variables in all of this, aren't there? I think there's still really quite a lot of uncertainty about how how the virus will behave, let alone how how, uh, workforces behave and so on. Exactly that. Um, And, and the impact of the impact of that again, we're going to have to retain some of that uh, agility that we've been using over these last months um, uh, to enable us to continue responding appropriately as and when we need to. I mean, for for us over the coming year, as I've mentioned, we want to return to the face to face services, particularly for our family support and our resettlement service users. Um, I think we're all going to have to readjust to going back to the office and and continue to focus on our on our resilience and our mental health and our readjustment period having having come through a massive adjustment period over these last months. I mean, for us at Prisons Abroad, we need to uh, rebuild our income. We will be launching a new strategic plan in the coming year. Um, but what is really critical is going to be about restarting our fundraising events because of the importance of that income. Um, you know, without it, we can't provide the life-saving services and and the hope for for the future that our service users uh, need us to provide. Mm. Um, ultimately, you know, we want to carry on making the difference that that really helps our service users survive overseas imprisonment with the dignity and the hope that we that we really want to give them. 
Exactly right. And it is a fantastic mission that you're on, uh, Pauline. So I really hope that, of course, um, it can all come together and everything can continue into that post-COVID period because it has proven such a significant challenge for so many charitable organisations like your own. And I think as we start to understand a little bit more about what is likely to come over the next few months, I'd quite love to have you back on the show with us and catch up on how things are getting on because, as we've said, there is so much uncertainty still out there. We don't know what's going to happen. So just reassessing the situation later on down the line, I think would be most useful. Thank you. That would be great. I'd thoroughly relish that opportunity, uh, Pauline. As I say, I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show with us today. And it's been a real eye-opening experience into the work of prisoners abroad. And um, most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. Because we know we're not out of the woods with COVID yet, but hopefully better days are ahead of us. We just don't know when. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Pauline Crow, OBE, Chief Executive of Prisoners Abroad, onto the programme today. Um, on the Leaders' Council podcast, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership and therefore will be joined by our Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, on the programme next. He's going to be talking about his views on the COVID-19 pandemic over the last 15 or so months, as well as his hopes for the weeks ahead. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well Uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.